How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Unlike many industrialized and developing countries, the United States still does not have a national policy that prices a price on carbon pollution. Why? One reason is coal, the dirtiest of fossil fuels, still accounts for half of our electricity. And reaching agreement among states with different energy profiles, coastal states, extraction states, manufacturing states, is difficult and messy political business. Eric Pooley, deputy editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, has chronicled the colorful characters waging America's epic energy battle in a new book titled The Climate War. Mr. Pooley was previously managing editor of Fortune magazine and White House correspondent for Time magazine. Soon he'll take questions from our live audience in San Francisco here at Climate One. Please welcome Eric Pooley. Thank you very much. Eric, welcome. Thanks for coming to Climate Thank you, Greg. Great to be with you. Well, let's start. Uh, I want to sort of discover, talk about the, the narrative, the arc here of the, the climate story. And 1988 is a pretty critical year. Uh, climate had been bubbling around uh, in academic circles. But in 1988, there were some congressional, hearings, congressional hearings for the first time. So tell us how that kind of launched well, that's uh, in the summer, the very hot summer of 1988. Uh, uh, Jim Hansen, the uh, the director of of the uh, the NASA GIS, the 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 folks who are are charged with uh, figuring out what's going on in the atmosphere of our planet and explaining it to the rest of us, um, testified before the the Senate, uh, and his testimony became front page news in the New York Times because he said uh, the greenhouse gas. Uh, is affecting our planet now. The greenhouse effect, excuse me, is visited upon us now. Uh, it, it was the first time anybody said, this is happening here and now, and we have to deal with it. And it got an enormous amount of attention. Um, now, scientists, of course, have been studying this for, uh, you know, for decades. In 1965, the President's Advisory Panel uh, told in great detail in a report to Lyndon Baines Johnson exactly what was going to be happening with the climate. Uh, the, the, the physics of heat-trapping gases had been understood for a century. So um, it, it shouldn't have been surprising in 1988, but for some reason it was. And then, so what was the impact? There's a big splash of, of news coverage. What, what followed on, what followed, what became of that? Nothing. <laughs> we all went back to sleep, I'm afraid. Um, there was a, uh, a flurry of interest. Uh, and then, um, not atypically, uh, the media didn't do a bang-up job of reporting this. Uh, the uh, idea uh, went into the land that, that this was going to... Uh, be a situation in which uh, each day was hotter than the one before, that it would be a steady march to hotter and hotter uh, 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 weather. And, of course, climate change doesn't work like that, as you well know. Uh, so when, when things didn't immediately get hotter, in fact, when it was a little cooler the next year, uh, a lot of people decided this must not really be happening, and they, and they sort of stopped paying attention. Um, so what we call the issue attention cycle took its first rise and fall, and we've seen a lot of those since. And at some point, uh, James Hansen himself got frustrated and went back into his lab and said, I don't want to deal with politics or the media. I just want to do my research. Well, that's right. Hansen had, um, uh, a year later, wanted to correct the record and and explain to people that the the climate change wasn't going to be this dramatically rising, simple situation, that it was going to be chaotic. Um, And he, he wanted to give some testimony in front of Al Gore's committee, um, and uh, he was uh, redacted so dramatically uh, by the uh, White House that he called up Gore the night before the hearing and said, uh, uh, they're not letting me say what I want to say. Uh, and Gore called a press conference, and um, 
Hansen was a little bit uncomfortable with the uh, with the way that Gore was politicizing uh, and, uh, and and sort of uh, grabbing media attention uh, from this, and he decided that he didn't really have a stomach uh, for for political combat, and he really withdrew from uh, from the public debate uh, for many years until. Um, Al Gore talked him into helping him put together an inconvenient truth. Uh, and and um, Hansen told me that he decided to come back in because things were getting so much worse, nobody was doing anything about it, and, and he really felt there was no choice but to start communicating again. And, and we'll get to Hansen and some of the other characters later, but one of the next key milestones is 1992. Uh, and, and actually, in reading your book, I recalled or learned that it was the... Bush, first Bush administration, which actually ratified the IPCC. Uh, so in 1992, the IPCC was International Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change was formed. So how is that important in the, in the, the next milestone? Well, the, uh, the, you, you may recall the Earth Summit in Rio. Sure. Um, and the, uh, the, that was where we put the idea on the table that the world was going to do something uh, to reduce emissions. Uh, uh, the Bush administration, President Bush signed that treaty that brought uh, uh, the United Nations process into being, and the United States Senate ratified uh, th- that global treaty uh, with- without a peep. Um, they they made sure that all of the language inside the documents that came out of the Rio summit w- dealt with voluntary rather than uh, mandatory action. So it wasn't that, uh, that Bush was that enlightened. But look, Bush, uh, he had just put through the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, which imposed a uh, market-based cap-and-trade system on the sulfur dioxide pollution Mm -hmm. that uh, causes acid rain. Um, That was a Republican idea. Uh, Fast forward uh, 20 years, and of course it's demonized by the Republicans as being this crazy uh, left-wing idea. You know, when in fact it's a quite a conservative notion uh, that originated with a Republican president. So the first President Bush had had uh, uh, quite a good environmental record. He made good on his campaign pledge uh, to uh, to be an environmental president. Interesting. And then the next milestone, Kyoto, 1997. You write a lot about uh, Al Gore and had significant access to him. How could Al Gore negotiate a treaty that he couldn't get? a former senator negotiate a treaty that couldn't get through the Senate, and they didn't even submit to the Senate. Well, this was a, uh, a, a dark day in American history, in my view. Uh, before we even got to Kyoto, the, the United States Senate uh, uh, overwhelmingly, unanimously passed the Byrd-Hagel Resolution, which mm-hmm. warned the negotiators not to come home with a treaty that, uh, that didn't include China, uh, or that would do any damage to the American economy. And that's really where we started this, uh, this sort of big lie that climate action would destroy the economy. And the Senate, uh, in the Bert Hagel resolution, uh, you know, put the world on notice that the Senate was never going to do anything that would uh, do any harm to the United States economy. Um, now, we had already agreed that we were going to let China off the hook in the UN negotiations. Uh, we, di- we did that in Bonn. Uh, a, a short time earlier, uh, and we did that because we had a hundred year head start in getting rich by spewing carbon uh, emissions into the atmosphere and it certainly wouldn 't have been fair to ask the Chinese or the Indians or any other developing nation to begin to constrain their carbon uh, when on a per capita basis it was tiny compared to ours uh, when we were so much richer than they were, so much more technologically advanced, so much more able to 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 figure out how to reduce emissions. Uh, so we let China off the hook uh, quite properly, in my view. Uh, we, uh, we, we then passed in the Senate a resolution saying that if we let China off the hook, uh, we would never pass the bill uh, or, or ratify the treaty. And then we went off uh, into an, uh, Gore rode into an impossible situation uh, and did the best he could. He hoped that there would be some way over time to lure the Chinese into the deal. Uh, and that uh, and that that would then placate the Senate. Uh, it, it didn't work out that way. Uh, China didn't get lured. The Senate didn't get placated, and the treaty didn't get ratified. 
And, we're, and the international process is still saddled with this separation of the world into two groups of countries, right? The industrialized and you know, Annex Two, et cetera. And the Copenhagen process seems to be still uh, saddled by by bridging that rift, right? Even though China has, you could argue that China be- belongs in the industrialized category now. Well, it was interesting because the real business in Copenhagen got done in a group of five or six countries, uh, including China. So what Obama did was kind of ignore the larger group and just negotiate with the major emitters. And uh, uh, heaping another irony, there's a sort of a second process, aside from the UN process, known as the Major Economies Forum, uh, that was founded by President uh, George W. Bush as the Major Economies Meeting. It was derided universally as a Potemkin uh, approach, a, a phony process designed to give him political cover for not doing anything in the UN uh, process, and that's what it was. But now the Obama administration is actually trying to use that process constructively because the UN process is seen as so unwieldy in part because of the divide that you described. And because it requires unanimity to do anything, right? Mm-hmm. 192 countries, which seems like it's kind of flawed from the beginning. But let's be honest, the biggest uh, problem in Copenhagen wasn't the bifurcation between developed and developing nations. It was the fact that the United States showed up empty-handed. Uh, in, and my book is sort of the, the ex- explanation of why we showed up empty-handed. The, I started this book in, in 2007, and I thought that between the Bali conference in 2007 and the Copenhagen conference in 2009, that the United States would... Uh, find the way to pass even the first halting attempt at capping carbon emissions simply because we had to. The, uh, the, the global deal depended on it. It hung in the balance. And uh, fast-forwarding just a little bit, in early 2009, Al Gore sent a memo to President Obama, a confidential memorandum in which he described in great detail the, the, uh, the way that the global deal depended on American action in the year 2009. Uh, and when the Obama administration decided not to act, when it decided to to uh, put health care reform ahead of climate and energy legislation, uh, it was essentially consigning Copenhagen to failure. And in Copenhagen, one of the uh, uh, White House officials took me aside and said, um, we were warned, Al Gore warned us that this would happen, and, and Copenhagen was a failure uh, for many reasons, but I think foremost reason was because the U.S. came empty-handed. And what you seem to be saying is it became empty, it came empty-handed because of a political choice that the White House made, not because Congress wouldn't give it the, the tools to, to go to Copenhagen. Well, Congress is a problem, don't get me wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the House of Representatives ha- had managed to pass a bill, um, the, the Waxman-Markey bill, uh, which was flawed and compromised, but in my view, a, 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 a good first step. Uh, a baby step, but a, a baby step that we need to take. Um, when that bill uh, passed, uh, it unleashed a furious opposition on the part of the opponents of climate action. Uh, this was the summer of the Tea Party movement. This was uh, the first flourishing of, of, of that uh, level of, of hatred and, and fear about, about the future, fear of Obama's America, if you will. And um, that anger was directed first, not at health care reform, but at the climate bill. And I was at an event in Charlottesville, Virginia, where you, it looked like a, a picnic. It was on the 4th of July, except uh, people were holding hateful, absolutely hateful signs uh, that I won't repeat. They were singing songs. They were close to burning uh, in effigy the uh, local representatives who had voted in favor of the climate bill. Um, the, the virulence that rolled across the land from Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and, and, and other uh, uh, leaders of Republican thought, um, frankly, scared both the Senate and the White House. The White House had been pursuing uh, what was described to me as a stealth strategy. It was not deploying the president uh, on this issue uh, in a high-profile way. Oh, he would do an event at a uh, solar factory uh, on a Tuesday afternoon and give a nice speech about the need to transition to cleaner energy. Uh, but he didn't do it in prime time. He didn't do it uh, in, 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 in ways that the American people would actually hear. And he passed up time after time to opportunity after opportunity to tell folks what was going on. 
when definitive reports about climate science uh, appeared, he would uh, not choose to be the messenger of those. He would give uh, Jane uh, Lubchenco, the, the uh, head of NOAA, or John Holdren, his science advisor, uh, he would send them out to talk about it. He, he, he chose not to be front and center, and this wasn't an accident. This was a political strategy uh, devised by Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel and David Axelrod, who thought that uh, it would be uh, dangerous for Obama to become too closely associated with such a controversial and unpopular policy. And they thought that they could pursue a stealth strategy that worked behind the scenes to get stuff done, but didn't really put the president out there. Um, Henry Waxman and Nancy Pelosi forced their hand by bringing the Waxman-Markey bill to the floor of the House, and for a couple of weeks, the White House kind of dropped that strategy and worked very hard and effectively to pass that bill, and that's part of the reason it did pass. But after it did, and and the uh, attacks by opponents uh, reached the zenith of their fury, they stopped doing anything, and the bill lost all momentum, and they said, we're going to deal with this in Q1 of 2010. We're not going to deal with it now. Uh, Harry Reid was pleading with the White House to give him some marching orders to bring this thing to the floor. Uh, the, the Senate was flailing around, desperately in need of adult supervision, and the uh, Obama administration declined to provide that. Uh, then... Um, uh, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody when we got to Copenhagen and things didn't go very well. I understand the sales strategy. I want to just push back a little bit on, on sort of the not deploying the president. I seem to recall that when he signed the stimulus bill, he went to a, a solar facility in Denver. Last time he was in California a couple of weeks ago, he went to a solar facility here. Um, so he does seem to be uh, Earth Day. I think he went to MIT and get, give a speech. He does seem to be talking about this a little more than maybe you suggested. Well, but these are daytime. Not really putting these, the, are, these are the kind of day I, I use the the, the uh, suggestion of a solar factory on a Tuesday afternoon yeah. as the kind of thing that he does do. Um, but he doesn't put the muscle behind it to in the closed room to to twist arms. And, well, he doesn't. He doesn't bring a bill to the floor uh, of the United States Senate uh, when he finally gave his first primetime televised address on clean energy just a couple of weeks ago, uh, he didn't mention a mandatory declining cap on carbon. He didn't uh, use the phrase climate change. He he used the word climate once. Uh, He didn't talk about the importance of pricing carbon. Uh, And for 18 months, the climate community had been waiting for the president to give a speech uh, of that kind on that subject in primetime to the American people. Talking about it at a uh, at an MIT event or a, a wind turbine factory in Iowa or what have you is fine and dandy, but it is not enough. Uh, we're talking about uh, trying to make the American people understand the relationship between the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, this sea monster at the bottom of the of the Gulf that's spewing 50,000, 60,000, God knows how many barrels a day. Uh, the billion dollars a year, a day, excuse me, that we're sending overseas for oil, um, the uh, fact that we're losing the clean energy race to China, uh, which is spending $9 billion a month, uh, and the fact that the climate scientists uh, uh, overwhelmingly agree that uh, if we continue to burn hydrocarbons at the rate we're doing, uh, we're going to uh, spin the climate system uh, in catastrophically chaotic ways. We don't know exactly how long it's going to take. We don't know exactly where the uh, geographical distribution of chaos will be. But they know what's coming. Um, the White House has, has uh, been very happy to talk about clean energy. It has been far less uh, willing to talk about uh, the reality of, of climate change. Uh, and even at the moment when Obama finally gave the primetime address... Uh, he declined to do it. We saw a version of the stealth strategy in primetime from the Oval Office. Eric Pooley is deputy managing editor of Bloomberg Businessweek and author of The Climate War. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing clean energy at Climate One. Uh, you write about a cadre of officials that he that the president brought into office, uh, Lisa Jackson at EPA, uh, others who've been very dedicated, very effective uh, bureaucratic infighters. Are they having any influence on, on getting the president to, to, to do more, or are they being pushed aside? Well, they've had an – look, don't get me wrong. The, the Obama administration has, has gotten a lot done. The EPA under Lisa Jackson uh, has been terrific. Uh, they have moved ahead w- with the president's blessing 
to, uh, to impose regulations on greenhouse gas emissions from stationary sources. This is a big deal, and the Senate, uh, trying its best to go backward, uh, entertained a resolution of disapproval a couple of weeks ago that, that would have stripped EPA of its authority to regulate carbon, and uh, it was defeated only narrowly. Um, so... Uh, the something, EP- that they, something that the U.S. Supreme Court gave it the authority to do. It did. The U.S. Supreme Court, uh, in, in this watershed year of, of 2007, I believe, um, uh, said that EPA had the duty, the obligation, to decide whether uh, greenhouse gas emissions posed a threat to the public health, and if they did, it had a duty to act. Uh, and Lo and behold, the Obama EPA found both things to be true. They found that the the threat was there, the endangerment is the term of art, uh, and then they proceeded to uh, to move on uh, regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. Obama has also beefed up uh, the, uh, uh, the the fuel efficiency standards for cars, which is another way to reduce uh, emissions from tailpipes. Um, so I'm not saying they haven't done anything. They have done the things on the re- regulatory basis. Uh, that they've been able to do. They've been strong on efficiency. They've put together a good team under uh, uh, Stephen Chu and the Department of Energy, uh, including Kathy Zoy from Al Gore's Alliance for Climate Protection, working specifically uh, on energy efficiency issues. Uh, where they have fallen down is specifically on trying to cap carbon, specifically on passing a, a, a mandatory declining limit on the amount of carbon pollution we can put in. That uh, they may be, and this is speculation now, deciding that, that they need to do that in the second term, that that's something that they can't do before uh, Obama runs for re-election. I describe Rahm Emanuel in the book as a, a very political guy, no surprise there, uh, a strategist who is interested in preserving presidential power across an eight-year arc. Uh, and if he doesn't think something is winnable, he's not willing to take it on. He sits down with, uh, with the leaders from a very important coalition called USCAP, the United States Climate Action Partnership, uh, comprised of Fortune 500 uh, CEOs and environmental leaders who are pushing for a cap. And uh, in the spring of 2009, Rahm Emanuel says to them, uh, you know, we'd like to get this done, but success breeds success. And if this bill gets stalled, we're going to go on to health care. Uh, now, the bill didn't get stalled. It passed, but they went on to health care anyway. Um, essentially, Emmanuel doesn't think it's winnable. Uh, he doesn't think that it's possible to get the 60 votes in the Senate to pass an economy-wide uh, cap. He may be right. There are about 50 votes for. There are 30 votes dead set against. There are 20 votes in the middle. We would need to get 10 of those 20. Um, My point is that it would have taken a sustained White House effort on three levels to get this done. It would have taken White House intervention on the level of public communication, such as I've been describing. It would have taken serious policymaking. The the, the Bush administration uh, spent 10 weeks... Uh, set up shop off the floor of the, and this is the first Bush administration when they passed the Clean Air Act Amendments Mm -hmm. of 1990, 10 weeks solving very serious public policy problems state by state to get that thing done, a level of engagement that the White House has not shown, the Obama White House has not shown on this issue. Uh, And the third one is old-fashioned politicking. He needs to do a lot more behind-the-scenes job-owning than he's been doing. He would need to do all three of those things on a sustained basis uh, if he had begun doing that after taking office, we would be in a different place now, in my view. We would be in a place where we weren't 10 votes shy, necessarily. Maybe we would be 5 votes shy, but we would be, I believe, within striking distance of getting this done. Instead, we've seen the, the window of opportunity slam shut, and now the question isn't, can we get through the window? It's, can Obama open the window again and then get through it? I don't think it had to be that way. Do you think that candidate Obama was more enlightened or, or active on this than President Obama? Well, candidate Obama talked about it uh, more than President Obama has, uh, and he talked about it in much higher profile forums. Uh, I'm thinking now uh, the, uh, the second debate against John McCain in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, when uh, Obama made the case for the clean energy economy 
uh, that that clean energy technologies could drive the American economy for the next 20 or 30 years the way the computer and the Internet had driven the economy for the last 20 or 30 years. And it was a a brilliant rhetorical device uh, that I haven't heard him use that much since. Um, uh, He was... um, Careful not to talk about it as much when he was in coal states, when he was in the heartland. Uh, he was, a, uh, he was mm-hmm. a, a, a hell of a good politician. Talked a uh, lot about clean coal. He talked a lot about clean coal. Um, the, uh, there are some characters in my book, and maybe I should point out, to write this book, uh, I worked on it full-time for three years. I embedded with uh, people on all sides of the debate. I embedded with uh, Al Gore and the Alliance for Climate Protection, Fred Krupp and the Environmental Defense Fund, which has been the champion of the of the cap going back to the uh, acid rain cap and trade program, mm-hmm. uh, which they helped devise, uh, frankly, as a model for what they wanted to do on carbon, though they didn't describe it in those terms at the time. But uh, you talked about 1988. Well, back even earlier in the in the mid 80s, in in 86, 87. Uh, EDF was already talking about a cap-and-trade program for acid rain so that it would be proof uh, that it, this could work for carbon as well. Hmm. So, I, so I tell that story in my book. I also embed with people on the other side, uh, the, the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity, who sponsored uh, debates in the primaries, who, uh, who, whose ads were ubiquitous throughout the uh, uh, um, uh, the, the election, and who sent uh, teams to all of the presidential town hall forums to to sort of ask questions about clean coal and get Obama to say nice things about clean coal that they would then put in their advertisements. Uh, so their best spokesman for clean coal turned out to be Barack Obama. Um, I also embedded with a guy named Jim Rogers, who is the most mysterious character in this book. He's the CEO of Duke Energy, one of the largest uh, emitters in the country, uh, a, uh, uh, a electric utility that has 20 coal-fired power plants and, and is uh, uh, building another one, uh, as we speak, in, in North Carolina, a coal plant that won't be able to capture or store any of its carbon. Uh, and yet Jim Rogers is a guy who, who talks about the need to transition to clean energy. Uh, he talks about uh, the grandchildren test when his own grandchildren will ask him, you know, granddad, what did you do uh, to try to, uh, you know, prevent catastrophic climate change. Uh, he, uh, he is playing both sides against the middle throughout much of the book, and you don't know which side he's on. And frankly, Jim Rogers didn't know which side he was on either. Uh, he was a guy who uh, wanted to reduce emissions. He wanted to make money off of carbon through allowances. Uh, he wanted to uh, serve his shareholders. He wanted to keep costs low for his customers. He wanted it all, and he had no idea whether he could pull it off but he was trying and having a hell of a time uh, enjoying the game more than anybody I've ever seen. Uh, and, uh, and so he's one of the key characters because he embodies the compromises at the heart of this thing. I wanted to write a book about whether the American political system, dysfunctional as it is, could rise to this challenge, uh, whether the gulf between what our science says we need to do to take on this problem and what our politics says is possible could ever be narrowed enough to really get something done here. Frankly, uh, the answer so far has been no. Our political system has not risen to the challenge. Uh, The compromises that uh, are part and parcel of American politics have not allowed us to get this done. Uh, and the story that I hoped in 2007 would have, a two, would have a happy ending in 2009 has not worked out that way. So I wrote a story uh, that was a cliffhanger. I see it as a, a political uh, thriller, if you will. And sometimes I felt, Greg, that it was a whodunit because uh, wherever I would go, uh, there would be people declaring uh, the climate bill dead. Uh, and it reminded me when I was a uh, police reporter early in my career in New York City, there was a, uh, a homicide detective named Marty Davitt. And when a shooting would happen, uh, Davitt would go to the hospital and intercept the guy who got shot. And he would lean over him and, and look down and ask, who killed you? And the, the, the guy would look up and mumble, but I'm, I'm not dead. And Davitt would say, well, you're going to die. You just don't know it yet. Uh, so you might as well tell me who did it. 
And, and there were a lot of people who were treating the climate bill and the, and the people trying to design the climate bill like David did. They would, they would go in and talk to Joe Lieberman or, or Henry Waxman and they would say, well, this bill is dead. And you know, there's a, a competition in the chattering classes in Washington to declare stuff dead. I didn't want to participate in that, so I didn't set it up as a whodunit. But if you did that, it would really be an Agatha Christie novel like Murder on the Orient Express where there are a lot of different culprits because a lot of folks have conspired to prevent us from getting this done. Well, you mentioned uh, the Alliance for Clean Coal Electricity. In fact, Joe Lucas has been here uh, on this stage before from, from that alliance. Uh, but we haven't talked about what you call the denial sphere, uh, people who just flat out will say it's not happening, or if it is happening, it doesn't matter, or if it does matter, we can't afford to do anything about it. So talk about the denial sphere, the, the culprits there who have been blocking this every step of well, the way. Well, these guys uh, are in the book, too, um, the, the, the leading... Uh, and, and uh, let me just stipulate, I don't use the term denier for, for anybody who is skeptical about global climate change. Uh, I use it, I reserve it for the paid professional PR men who are paid to sow doubt and confusion about whether this is really happening. To me, those are the professional deniers. And uh, I went to uh, what I call the, the deniers convention uh, in New York City in, the, in March of 2008. I went to another one in 2009. But... Uh, uh, this was a, uh, a smorgasbord of misinformation where you had a lot of people posing as experts, um, some of whom, uh, 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 I could count on one hand the number of whom were actual climatologists. They are the outliers in the climate community. Uh, and then a lot of other sort of PR people uh, who were uh, posing as experts and reassuring the people in the audience uh, that it's natural variability, it's sunspots, it's whatever you want it to be, but it's not uh, uh, carbon emissions created by human activity. Um, I don't, I spend a little bit of time on the, on the, on the, on the science, uh, and you can get a pretty good idea of, of, of climate science and the flawed climate denier science from reading this book. But the most interesting part of that convention to me was happening way up on the top floor of the hotel where it was held, uh, where, the, where the, the political operatives were describing exactly how they were going to kill the climate bill. Uh, and they sort of opened up their playbook, uh, and they talked about what they were going to do. And what they were going to do was uh, exaggerate the costs of climate action. They were going to ignore the costs of climate inaction. They were going to uh, hire... Uh, economists to, to trot out doomsday forecasts that would tell us that if we imposed a cap on carbon, uh, it would throw millions of Americans out of work uh, and double uh, electricity rates. Uh, and they would repeat over and over again that cap and trade is a tax. Uh, they would call it cap and tax. They would uh, use the same uh, set of plays uh, that the opponents of, of environmental action have used going back to the BTU tax of 1993 uh, would say defeated with exactly these same sort of phrases, the same sort of uh, going out to the heartland, scaring the pants off people and getting them to call their uh, representatives and tell them not to vote for this. Uh, that's what they did then and it worked and, and that's what they did in 2008 in the Lieberman-Warner bill and it worked extremely well. Uh, and it's worked so well that senators are terrified that if they vote for a climate bill, uh, they will be thrown out of office and branded as uh, tax and spend Democrats. Uh, we or, need to get past this kind of politics. This politics has been in place since Ronald Reagan. It's holding us back, and, and we have to find a way to, de to neutralize it. You mentioned uh, Warner Lieberman and uh, it being deemed dead several times, and yet uh, the person, the senator who steered that through uh, was Senator Boxer, and you write quite the people were quite critical of her uh, leadership on that bill, and yet she uh, got it out of subcommittee, got it out of committee, which many people didn't think she would be able to get it to the floor. Barbara Boxer is, is tough. She is a, a pugilist, and she does not take no for an answer. She is not, uh, in my view, a master legislator who knows how to forge compromises, and she uh, was perhaps not the, the best person to try to steer a climate bill uh, through the Senate, because she was unwilling to make some of the compromises. Some, God bless her, she shouldn't have made. There were others that didn't really have an impact on the environmental outcome of the bill that she was also unwilling to make. 
Um, she was caught between Washington politics and California politics, if you will. Um, and, uh, uh, and she always had a firm eye on California politics. And if, and if one or the other was going to fail, she was going to let Washington politics fall away and she was going to tend to California politics. So she was not going to cross the Sierra Club. She was not going to do things that uh, what I call the deep greens uh, w- would mm-hmm. not abide. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not saying the deep greens are, are, are wrong on many of these things. I'm saying that the, in the politics of the United States Senate, uh, you were not going to get to 60 votes in 2008 without making some compromises. One, for example, would be nuclear power. Um, you need to put a strong nuclear subtitle uh, into a bill in order to get it, uh, pick up some votes on the right. Boxer had stripped off a bill in 2005 when it had some nuclear subsidies added. Uh, that was the second Lieberman-McCain bill. Uh, and, and there were places that she wasn't willing to go that one would need to go in order to, to pass a bill. Uh, so I give Barbara Boxer a lot of credit uh, for trying to get this done, for having courage in a, uh, in a pretty cowardly institution. Um, but, uh, but I think ultimately that uh, she was not the person to get it done. Now, I want to stipulate that, uh, that I'm not in favor of passing a climate bill that's so watered down that it's not worth passing. I want a climate bill that the atmosphere will actually notice. Um, but I do think that in order to achieve a climate bill, uh, everybody on all sides needs to climb down a little bit. I think environmentalists need to accept that we at least have to maintain uh, our current level of nuclear generation at 20%, uh, and we're going to have to build some nuclear power plants in order to do that. That's just one example. Um, there are other profoundly uncomfortable things that people are going to have to swallow if we want to get this done. But if we believe that the problem is real, as I do, I think it's important to, to make some of those compromises as long as they don't destroy the environmental effectiveness of the bill. Eric Pooley is deputy managing editor of Bloomberg Business Week, and we're discussing his new book, The Climate War, uh, here at Climate One. Another key figure uh, is Al Gore, and you write quite a bit about him. Uh, he, his Alliance for Climate Protection spent $300 million over three years to change the minds of Americans what evidence is there that that was successful, that that was money well spent? Well, this is a complicated one. The polls are all over the place. And um, uh, right now the polling is up. Uh, last one I saw, 77% of Americans wanted to do something about this problem. They were rising because of the oil spill. Um, uh, I, I don't think you can say that, uh, as many, many people have said, that Gore failed. Uh, I think it's too simple to say that Gore failed, uh, because you don't know what the uh, environment, the political environment and the public opinion would have been had he not deployed that money. Uh, we might have been in much worse shape without the, the money and the messaging that Al spent. And I know he recruited millions of people. Uh, he got a lot of people thinking about this who hadn't been thinking about it. Uh, and frankly, I wouldn't like to think about where we, where we would be right now if Al Gore hadn't have stepped up with an inconvenient truth and then the Alliance for Climate Protection, I think they've been forces for good. And uh, there are a lot of people in this country, some of them his bitterest political opponents, uh, some of them newsmen and pollsters, who like to frame it as if Al Gore failed, as if this is up to Al Gore and it's all about Al Gore, and did Al Gore get this done or not? Um, and in my view, it's not really about Al Gore. It's really about us. Uh, he's putting the information out there. Others are as well. It's really a question of whether we're willing to step up and say that this is something that's important to us. And so far, I think the failure has been on the part of uh, the American people at large for not taking this seriously enough. Even people that get it too often view this as a spectator sport where they sit back and watch, well, can Barbara Boxer get this bill passed? You know, can Al Gore, you know, single-handedly get this done? Is John Kerry going to get his bill through with Joe Lieberman? Is, 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 is Barack Obama going to step up? All right, well, what about us? You know, when are we going to step up? Now, some Americans have. Some Americans are writing. Uh, this is a participatory democracy where if we let it be heard that we think that this oil spill is a great reason for us to get on an accelerated track to clean energy and millions of Americans make that case, then Rahm Emanuel is not going to be able to convince Barack Obama that this is bad politics. Barack Obama is going to say, well, yo, Rahm, what about all these people that say we want to do it? And I think, you know, I think it works, and, and, and I'd like to see it happen. The, uh, 
we're going to go to the question, audience questions in just a minute. So if you'd start to line up, uh, Aaliyah over there, my producer, is uh, welcome you to line up there. Uh, on the oil spill, uh, the International Energy Agency wrote recently that the, the BP oil spill might prove to be a supply-side game changer. And I think what they were talking about is, is the regulation and increasing costs of drilling, et cetera, could really be uh, not, just not only a political game changer, but a game changer in terms of the supply of energy. So is that really sinking in in Washington? Not yet, no. Uh, I think the, the notion that, uh, that, that coal – I'm sorry, excuse me, that oil – Long term is not going to be there for us. Has, has largely not sunk in. Uh, the the peak oil theory uh, is uh, is still seen as as controversial. Uh, when uh, there was a, a group of Kuwaiti uh, scientists not long ago who were placing peak oil at I believe the um, was what was the year twenty fourteen I think they they were predicting based on the reserves uh, in. Uh, in all of the uh, the the Emirates, we um, had an official from Toyota sit here a couple months ago, say, or, yeah, around that time, Toyota. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so this this should not be controversial, yet it's still seen as controversial in the United States. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Where has the oil been coming from? The big finds have been deep water finds. Uh, most of, of BP's uh, holdings uh, and reserves in the Gulf of Mexico were deep water reserves. Um, it's going to be a while before anybody's comfortable with BP drilling another one of those. And uh, although they are uh, um, an outlier uh, in terms of their safety record, uh, it's kind of funny that ExxonMobil, which for good reason has often been criticized as an opponent of climate action, has a much better safety record than BP, which has always cast itself as the greenest of the petroleum companies. Uh, but there you have it. The politics are such that we're going to uh, not be drilling as much as we were the uh, the book talks about Obama's flip-flop on deep sea, deep water, and offshore drilling, uh, and it explains exactly when he came around during the campaign and why. Uh, and it was on March 31st of this year that he enshrined that in an expansion of offshore drilling. Uh, and it was a couple of days after that that, uh, in, a, um, in remarks, uh, he said, you know, it turns out that, uh, that offshore drilling is, is really safe uh, and that they hardly ever have an accident. And a couple of weeks later... Uh, this black swan event happened. Um, so I think the, the, the folks that warn that uh, there's not going to be em- enough oil to go around, uh, not only because of cutting back on uh, offshore drilling, but just because there's not enough oil in the ground to slake our thirst, let alone the growing thirst of the developing world, long term. So even if there wasn't a climate crisis, we would need to get off of this stuff. But by the way, there is one. So there are plenty of reasons to do it. And the question is, when are we going to really get started in this country? Eric Pooley's deputy managing editor of Bloomberg Businessweek and author of The Climate Wars, our guest here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have audience questions. Please keep them uh, one question and keep them nice and sweet, and we'll get lots through lots of questions for Eric. Yes, sir. Um, my question is, I took an environmental class on the GI Bill back in 1979 and learned about the global warming theory and realized that it seemed to make credible sense. A year later, the San Jose Mercury News did an article about my proposal for a youth energy corps as part of our national security strategy to become more energy independent, focusing on conservation and alternative technology and educating the public. And this would be a year-to-year wake-up call. Unfortunately, over the last 30 years, the so liberals... My, my point is, question is... The question is, the liberals that I've approached don't think this is relevant, that they don't think it's that important. They think regulation will solve the problem or education or enlightenment. But it's unclear to me why we can't have a year-to-year wake-up call and nobody really wants to even debate it. Well, I can't speak to the specifics of your proposal, but I I think we need action at every level. I think we need individual action, uh, and I think we need societal action. I'm all in favor of... of, uh, of any good idea to get people thinking about this and get them to uh, 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 to act. Um, my own feeling is that altruism isn't going to get us there. Uh, we need to realign the market incentives so that uh, uh, there, there's a, a profit motive for going green, and that's what environmental economics is all about. Um, I don't think that can even get us all the way there, but I think that can unleash the dynamism of the American economy in the right direction instead of the wrong direction. We've been misaligned for 100 years. We need to, to align properly, 
by closing this carbon loophole, by putting a price on the stuff, and hence making it profitable to clean up instead of profitable to pollute. Next question. As one who goes home to South Carolina often to visit family, I'm kind of curious about Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham. Um, He used to uh, talk about and and write editorials about how he had a new constituency on college campuses because of his environmental stance, and now we've lost him, an important bipartisan voice. Is it really about immigration, or is there something else? Well, I think... think, uh it was never about immigration, even for Harry Reid. It was, it was about currying favor with Latino voters uh, in uh, Nevada, Colorado, and California. Um, here's what I think uh, about Lindsey Graham. As, as his mentor, John McCain, turned away from climate action after uh, a decade of, of being a real leader on the issue, uh, that left... Uh, and, and as John Warner, who had co-sponsored the uh, the Lieberman-Warner bill, Republican of Virginia, retired, uh, that left exactly nobody in the Republican Party talking about this issue uh, in the in the Senate. Um, Lindsey Graham stepped up and donned what I call McCain's mantle of climate courage. Uh, the Republicans saw him stick his head up out of the foxhole, and they started shooting at him. Uh, he was censured by the by the South Carolina uh, GOP uh, for standing up with Joe Lieberman and John Kerry and saying we should put a price on carbon and a mandatory cap on pollution. Um, that was a profoundly uncomfortable place for uh, for any Republican to be, even one who likes to be a maverick. Uh, and he did it because he thought the Democrats were serious about moving a bill. Uh, then he came to believe that they weren't serious, and the and the reason he believed that was because uh, Harry Reid, the majority leader, stood up and said, "You know, maybe we ought to do immigration first. Um, and uh, and that was really the la- the last straw for uh, uh, for Lindsey Graham. Uh, not that he was a white knight, uh, but just that he was taking a pounding. It was in all of the Democrats' interest to pretend that they were going to do something about this, even if they weren't. The only guy in whose interest it was not was Lindsey Graham because he was getting pounded by his base. So he sort of said, well, enough of this. I'm out. Um, he, he then proceeded to flail all over the place and, and talk about why you would want to cap carbon even if you didn't think global warming was real. He became progressively more incoherent. Uh, in the last week, he's announced that he'd be in favor of a cap in the utility sector, which happens to be the only compromise that's left on the table that could actually happen this year, in my view. Uh, But he wants to do it next year. So there was supposed to be a meeting uh, yesterday in the White House, including Lindsey Graham and other relevant leaders, uh, at which I hope that Obama would have persuaded him, and I hope that Obama is talking to him privately, uh, to move next year up to this year and get behind this bill this year because we could still get it done. Uh, a cap on the power sector would be a baby step, but it would be an important baby step because the power sector uh, produces more than a third of all the global warming pollution in the U.S., and if we could cap it, we could prove the chicken littles wrong, we could shut them up once and for all, and then we could extend it to the manufacturing sector and the petroleum sector. So I haven't given up on Lindsey Graham, uh, although there have been times when, uh, when I've been less than pleased with what I've heard him say. Eric Pooley, Deputy Managing Editor of Bloomberg Business Week, and our guest here at Climate One. Next question. Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. I'm an <clears throat> excuse me, Carter Brooks. I'm an artist uh, who's focused on the climate crisis. Um, recently, we had a, the Merchants of Doubt here, whose main thesis was that the scientists who've been speaking out against tobacco, or for the tobacco companies, or for for the oil companies, etc., are more driven by a political ideology emerging out of the Cold War than anything related to the science. Um, and so similarly, we have this issue here in, in all the politics around climate, yet there's still this drive by people working on it to we've got to talk about the science and get people to be motivated by the science when there's a whole other political ideology conversation happening. So it's sort of like Teflon, you know, it's just bouncing off. How, what suggestions would you have having looked at all this, and I've heard a lot about what we need to educate about what the real problem is, but what would you do about getting at it from a slightly different angle around all the political ideology issues involved in all of this? That's a great question. Um, I look at the the Merchants of Doubt as well, and the the book you mentioned is a good one, a very, very good one indeed. Um, I... um, 
Uh, I spent time with them. Uh, they, are, uh, they are a pernicious force in my view. Uh, and I, am not, I didn't mean to suggest that we can just explain the climate threat and lo and behold, everything is going to be okay and the American people are going to wake up and, and, uh, and we'll get going on it. Uh, what I objected to was not mentioning it at all. Uh, what I objected to was sort of leaving it out of the equation, and I call it the Trojan horse strategy, where you, 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 you hide climate change in the belly of the beast uh, and you let green jobs and the clean energy economy and, and freedom from foreign oil pull the contraption along. I think that's the wrong strategy. I think you have to talk about all of it at once. But, um, but it would be very helpful uh, if, and just here's an example, a month ago, uh, the National Academy of Sciences came out with the most definitive report to date on climate science and, and the climate threat, and it was unequivocal. It said that uh, the, the climate change is occurring, human activity is, is the, the, largely the reason why, uh, and uh, uh, if left unchecked, it will cause potentially catastrophic effects, impacts on human and animal systems. Um, Barack Obama didn't get up and, and mention that in his Oval Office address. Um, he didn't say, you know, 1863 was a really busy year for Abraham Lincoln, but Abraham Lincoln did something in 1863 that was really important. He created the National Academy of Sciences as the expert panel that would help advise the president and the Congress on scientific matters. And just a few weeks ago, they came out with this study that, that told us what's going on. Um, you know, we had a president for eight years who, who, who sowed doubt and confusion along with the merchants of doubt, right? George W. Bush was one of the merchants of doubt. Uh, he, he would dismiss a report, a definitive report on climate science as, you know, uh, a report that came out of the bureaucracy. That's a, a direct quote. He was derisive about it after pledging in his campaign in 2000 uh, to put a cap on the utility sector so that he could take that issue off the table and uh, create the illusion that there was no difference between Gore and Bush on the climate issue, uh, he immediately turned his back on that and spent eight years trying to persuade people that it wasn't really happening. Um, so I think uh, presidential uh, communication does have an impact over time uh, and that the new president has to undo some of what the old president did. Uh, and I think the climate message is part of that. And I think, uh, you know, calling the merchants of doubt on their misinformation is part of that. Now, you can't get down in the weeds in, a, in an Oval Office address and, and, and show everywhere that these guys are, are playing fast and loose with the, with the facts. But you can uh, appeal to the, uh, uh, the, the, the common sense of the American people. By the way, a majority of whom believe this is happening, even in the, in, in the darkest polls, uh, you know, all but the, but, but the most ridiculously phrased polls find that a, a majority of Americans believe climate change is real uh, and want to do something about it. It may fluctuate between the low 50s and the high 70s, but it, it is a majority. Uh, but are they willing to pay for it? What well, you know what? Increasingly, what increasingly they are. Uh, when you see that, and again, this is where I think we have to be, um, treat them like grown-ups. People pay for insurance. I don't think I'm going to wreck my car, but I still buy insurance on it. Of course, the, the government requires that. Uh, you know, I don't think a tree is going to fall on my house, but I buy insurance for it. I try to avoid catastrophes in the future. Uh, it's not that hard an equation. Um, you know, as John Holdren, the, the, the uh, science advisor, said, uh, you know, we're, we're in a car, in a fog, uh, heading toward a cliff, and, and we have bad breaks, you know. We don't know exactly how far away the cliff is, but it would be prudent to apply the brakes. You know, I think that's a pretty straightforward formulation that people can understand if you say it in, in you know, if you bring some repetition and some high-profile, large presidential megaphone moments to bear on it. Uh, so, you know, getting back to your earlier pushback, yeah, he's talked about it, but he's talked about it, you know, in very carefully controlled environments. Uh, and I think an issue this big, you have to talk about it a lot uh, and, and, uh, and, and forcefully and then again and again and again. But your book is full of people who say they want to do the right thing. Jim Rogers wants to do the right thing. He thinks about his grandchildren. He just wants someone else to pay for it. Well, and everybody wants someone else to pay. Here's the deal. Uh, everybody wants to be the hero of their own movie, right? Uh, I, don't, 
I don't walk around thinking of myself as a scoundrel. I don't think probably most folks here do. And, uh, you know, Jim Rogers wants to be the hero of his movie. He wants to be the guy that helped get this done. And um, I found that, that motive tends to be less important than, uh, than, than action. Uh, we all have conflicting motives, right? Rogers has conflicting motives. The question is, what did you actually do? And what did Rogers do? Well, he helped bring the utility industry on board to support climate action. That's a big deal. We wouldn't have had the Waxman-Markey bill pass the House without Jim Rogers doing that. Now, who should pay for it? Uh, arguably, uh, you know, we're all going to have to pay a little, uh, but why should a coal-based utility be punished for carrying out what was national policy in the United States for decades? Ever since the oil crisis of the 1970s, the national policy has been build coal-fired power plants. So Jim Rogers at Duke Energy and, and his predecessor companies was just carrying out national energy policy. So should his and, – and it's not him that's going to pay for it. It's going to be his customers who pay for it, right? Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. When you talk about polluter pays in this context, you're talking about the polluter's customers paying. You're talking about the people that buy electricity from Duke Energy. That's why any climate bill needs to cushion consumers from the rising costs of electricity. Sometimes they go through – incredibly convoluted contortions to try to get that done. Uh, but I find that part of the bill to be honorable. I find the, the attempt to cushion industries that are carbon intensive and American consumers who happen to live in states that are dependent on coal uh, as, as sort of the, the, the good part of the fight. Uh, some of the commentators pointed at those free allowances and said uh, that they were an example of all that's wrong with Washington. Well, I actually think they were an example of some of what was right with Washington because you need to cushion people from those because if your electricity rates double in the first few years of a cap, we're going to repeal that sucker. The American people are not going to do an environmental uh, act that is not economically sustainable as well as environmentally sustainable. Uh, So it's not just that Jim Rogers is greedy. Those free allowances, he was going to have to pass on their value to his customers. Um, uh, you know, he, he wanted the, uh, the capital flowing through his company. Uh, I'm not saying the guy is an angel, no. right? I call him the silver-tongued devil in, yeah. in my book. Uh, but frankly, we need a climate policy that gets silver-tongued devils on board or we're not going to get it done. Next question. Thanks for waiting. Oh, no, thank you. Um, well, China's quickly... Um you know, uh, trending towards uh, greater uh, renewable energy sources. Uh, they're becoming one of the number one leaders uh, in the industry in uh, many renewable energy sources. Plus, they're becoming a leader in uh, a number of state efficiency standards. I'm just wondering, is this apparent to the White House? And if so, um, would they use this um, as a good excuse to sell to the American public as an economic issue? And if so, who would lead the initiative in the White House? Thank you. Well, that's an excellent question. You're absolutely right. Um, as I mentioned, China's spending $9 billion uh, a month on clean energy. Uh, they have uh, centralized authoritarian economic planning. Uh, they, uh, they can move uh, a million villagers so they can put a, a solar farm in place if they choose they want to do that, and, they, and they've done that. Um, Jim Rogers of Duke Energy is involved in a joint venture project for a carbon capture and sequestration plant. Where is that plant? It's in China because they have no character for NIMBY. Um, it, is a, uh, uh, it is a given that it's going to be hard for us to compete with China. And if we're going to compete with them, we need a market to do so. We don't have the ability to uh, create new industries by governmental fiat the way they do. So we need a market to get this done. And, uh, and that's an excellent argument. You do hear Obama make that argument. The $9 billion figure I cited I got from Stephen Chu in his congressional testimony. And, uh, and I think it is one of the very strong arguments that we need to make. I'm not saying that a gloom and doom climate catastrophe argument is going to carry the day. I think we need to make all of these arguments all the time. And certainly Thomas Friedman is doing that frequently in his columns. Extremely well. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, there's another bill uh, put forward by Cantwell Collins, the cap and dividend. That would cushion the taxpayers. Uh, do you see that as having any traction? Because it's a simple bill. I think it's only 14 pages versus 1,400 pages of the cap and trade plus the offsets and 
all the scams involved with that. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see Cantwell Collins move. Um, I, I, I had heard 39 pages, but, uh, but you're right, it's a lot fewer. Uh, let, let me uh, say a couple things. If Cantwell Collins moved through the United States Senate, it would no longer be that short. Um, uh, it, it, would, uh, it would get a lot longer, a lot faster. Um, and uh, if I understand that bill correctly, it, gives, it takes all of the uh, allowances for carbon, it auctions them to the emitters, and then it takes all of that money and it gives it back to the American people on a per capita basis. Um, I've got one problem with that. Uh, it doesn't recognize that the, um, uh, that, the, uh, that, that the Americans who happen to live in the coal belt uh, will be disadvantaged by this bill a lot more than the Americans who are fortunate enough to live in the Pacific Northwest where the lion's share of the energy comes from hydroelectric power. I don't think it's fair to give everybody the same amount of money. Uh, if I'm misstating the bill because I, I, I haven't read all of those 39 pages, it's been described to me by Senate staffers. If I have it right, one thing it would need to do if it did move was to redress those regional imbalances that help make the Waxman-Markey bill c- complicated, and that would help make Cantwell Collins a little more complicated. But I, I would be, uh, I'm all about the cap. I want to get the cap in place. I want to reduce the amount of emissions. Uh, the trade part is about politics and economics. It's about trying to smooth out the costs. Uh, the Kerry Lieberman bill, that uh, is the other leading bill in the Senate right now, uh, has also taken steps to uh, to get rid of some of the stuff that I, I take bothers you about about cap and trade and bothers a lot of people. It doesn't let speculators trade allowances. Uh, it, the only people who get to buy and sell uh, carbon credits under this new bill would be major emitters, uh, the people that need them in order to emit. Uh, so it would take the investment bankers who brought you the subprime lending crisis out of the equation, which I think is a good move. I think it's politically essential. I was here in San Francisco in the uh, uh, spring of 2008 at the Carbon Forum America, where an investment banker from Credit Suisse stood up uh, and proudly described having just sold the first tranche of uh, carbon derivatives. They had taken um, European uh, uh, carbon credits sliced them and diced them and sold them in tranches, uh, and it sounded a lot like subprime to me, and I said, oh, boy, this is not going to end well. Uh, and, in fact, that was, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons that all the senators got so scared about trying to bring the bill to the floor in 2009 after the crash. It wasn't just that uh, they were terrified of, of what they saw abreast in the land. It was also that they didn't see how to explain this when people were still reeling from the subprime crisis. Cantwell Collins would do a good job of simplifying things. I'd be in favor of it. Alas, I don't think it's going to happen this year. I try not to make predictions, uh, but it seems very clear that the Senate does not have what it takes to pass an economy-wide cap this year. Uh, the, the, the sad news is that we are going to lose votes uh, uh, for climate action in the midterm elections unless uh, uh, history uh, you know, she turns on a dime. The, the ruling party always loses in the midterms. And um, uh, it's going to get even harder, not easier. So the, uh, the, the, to, to my mind, we ought to get what we can this year. We ought to do a cap on the utility sector. That may be doable. I don't think that Cantwell Collins is doable. I'd like to see us get started on something. Eric Pooley is Deputy Managing Editor of Bloomberg Businessweek and author of The Climate War. He's our guest here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. We've talked a lot today, uh, and we're wrapping up here, our last question. We've talked a lot here, Eric, about the executive and legislative branches. We have not mentioned the judiciary branch, and you write that the environmental movement of uh, was largely founded on the court battles of the 60s and 70s. When will climate move into the courts, and briefly, what will be the impact? Well, it will move into the courts uh, as soon as the EPA uh, begins regulating carbon at the stationary source level, which means uh, at, at, at local power plants. Uh, and um, John Dingell, the uh, congressman from Detroit, some call him the congressman from GM, um, uh, had a great phrase for what would happen when the EPA began to regulate carbon emissions. He called it a glorious mess because there would be so much litigation. It will be tied up in battle after battle. Nobody, even uh, my friends inside the EPA, uh, th- thinks that... Uh, uh, that EPA regulation is the right way to go on this because 
Uh, initially, it was seen as kind of a cudgel that was held over the Senate. You have to act or the EPA will. But at some point in the last year, uh, the K Street lobbyists and the, the C-suite opponents of action uh, changed their minds, and they said, you know what? Bring it on. We have a lot of lawyers on staff, and we will tie you up in knots for years to come. So uh, I think that's what we will see as the first uh, step in this uh, legal battle. We will see a lot of litigation that's going to slow things down. Uh, it may slow things down so much that uh, uh, the, the Democratic uh, numbers in the Senate bounce back before the EPA rules are actually put into place. Uh, and I'm heartsick by how long this is taking. You know, when, one thing that I try to do is um, take a page from the environmentalists that I saw in action up close, the ones I was embedded with, uh, who refused to uh, uh, give up. They refused to, to, to give in to the uh, temptation of, of uh, becoming cynical or, or despondent. Uh, and uh, Fred Krupp, the head of EDF, likes to quote his friend David Orr, a professor at, at Oberlin College, who distinguishes between optimism and hope. And, and when people refer to Fred as the most optimistic man in the climate movement, because he always thinks they're about to win. But, but uh, quoting Orr, Fred says, uh, no, I'm not optimistic at all, because optimism is a, is a calculation that the odds are in your favor. Uh, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Hope is out there fighting no matter what the odds are. Hope is not doing this careful calculation. Are we a little better or a little worse off today than we were yesterday? Um, frankly, in this line of work, you would go crazy if you were spending all of your time calibrating uh, how things are going. Uh, so uh, I'm not always optimistic as I see what's happening in our political system, but I try to always be hopeful. Our thanks to Eric Pooley, Deputy Managing Editor of Bloomberg Business Week, for his comments here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.